Canadian singer-songwriter, jazz vocalist, and pianist Lila Bialy exudes playfulness. Her creativity and sometimes cinematic arrangements touch the soul and lift the spirit. Juno Award winner and two times Juno Award nominee, Lila continues to push the boundaries of genre and her creativity. From her stints with Sting and Suzanne Vega to her own accomplished projects, Lila is a force in the music universe. We sat down to talk about this past year and being creative during a pandemic, life as an artist in Canada, what it was like to rehearse at Sting's Villa in Tuscany, and what she has planned for the coming year and her vision for life post-pandemic. Please enjoy the conversation with Lila Bialy. Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Lila, welcome to The Playful Musician. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me. How are, th- how are things in Toronto these days? Well, <laughs> we, we've just entered another... 28 day lockdown and um, oh no yeah I, I mean that word the meaning of that word keeps <laughs> shifting you know what I mean it's a, it's a moving target and yeah. there's so much debate around the merits of this and um, mm. what's happening is with the COVID variants that are now really uh, proliferating mm. you've got a new new kind of cohort of people being affected and they're trying to kind of dampen it down and, and get it under control. But a lot of the medical experts are like, this doesn't go far enough. If you're going to do a so-called lockdown, you need to go further. And then others are saying, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, this is lockdown number, I don't know, let's say 10. And mm. we just don't think we're going to see the benefits of it. So it's an ongoing dialogue. I said to my husband this morning, Steve, that last year, so a year ago this time, mm. Yeah. The feeling, the response emotionally to the pandemic for me, and I'm sure for many, was one of shock. Like, what is what Absolutely. is happening? You know, and how long is this going to last? And oh my goodness, what is this going to mean for musicians and the music business and industry? And this year, um, at least from where we stand in Toronto, 
I would say now it's more a feeling of resignation. Like, oh my gosh, mm. we we want to be out there playing and performing mm. and traveling. Yeah. And we see friends stateside, get, you know, who've already had their second dose of vaccine and they've got that passport and they can now move freely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're, yeah. I, neither of us has even gotten the first jab. And, you know, yet another slew of gigs have been canceled and it's tough. It's tough because I definitely stand on the side of being a little more conservative. Like, let's get this thing Mm -hmm. under control, you know, but um, I also see the merits of, of, uh, you know, how, how much can we keep things open and try and reestablish some form of normalcy without risking people's lives. So that's my long winded answer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like uh, for a lot of the musicians, it's this sort of a roller coaster of like hope and then resignation. Yeah. Like, oh, we're, we're coming out and then we could have gigs again. And, and then, oh no, we're not. That's exactly again. right. That's exactly right. And um, I mean, gosh, the venues, I just, mm. I think of all the venues that have had to yeah. shutter their doors and it's heartbreaking. Like the, the jazz standard in the New York city and institution, yeah. you know, oh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Is there, has there been any live music in Toronto? Well, so there was like, this lovely little window. Um, and if I recall correctly, it was from kind of the late summer of 2020 through the early fall. Mm. And it was this narrow little window. I myself did not do any gigs in Toronto. However, I did go outside the city. Um, I think it was September 12th or something last year mm-hmm. um, and played a, a show in in Waterloo, which is just due west of Toronto, a couple of hours. Okay. And I'm sure you've heard others speak to this. It was on the one hand so uplifting to be back mm. out in the world, but then it was also very strange because yeah. you had people were kind of siloed at their respective tables. And when I was selling my CDs after the gig, like I couldn't get close to anyone and like it just, you know, it's kind of the new normal. I mean, and I don't know how long Mm -hmm. this new normal will last, but now I would do anything I could to get back to that place. Um, But uh, yeah, that was one of the only gigs I played. And then, uh, you know, I did fly West. Uh, My family is in BC and okay. yeah. uh, we traveled west in July when cases were kind of at, at an all-time low for the year. Mm. And we played a smattering of shows. Um, and one of them, I was behind this plexiglass you know, <laughs> barrier. And because of the lighting, I could yeah. only see my reflection. I couldn't oh, actually no. see the audience, which was so bizarre. Mm. And, you know, and it was in in a market, uh, Victoria, BC, where I would typically sell out, you know, a small venue with no issues and tickets were moving like molasses. And I think it's because people were, they were reserved, you know? Yeah. 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 (laughs) So, yeah, it's been, it's been almost exactly a year since all this, you know, fell upon us. Mm. And, and you had, so Out of the Dust, was that? being released right around that time? Yeah. So Out of Dust was slated for release March 27th of 2020. Oh my God. I know. (laughs) I know, Steve. And, (laughs) 
I mean, some would argue that it couldn't have been worse timing, yeah. but I, I really felt, you know, especially when my team, various, you know, people from my team approached me and said, you might want to delay your release. And that's what we're doing mm -hmm. with other projects on our roster. Mm -hmm. You know, I really felt that, that the album needed to move forward per the originally scheduled timeline. And yeah. my sense was that these songs were written from a place of brokenness and trying mm. to move out of brokenness into a place of levity and light and renewal. And, and I thought, gosh, you know, this, this music could be meaningful for people in these times. So yeah. I don't, even though it's a kind of a terrible business decision, <laughs> I'm going to default to the better artistic decision and kind of human decision, which is to, to move forward with this in spite of, you know, um, what others might recommend. Uh, yeah. And I, ha I have no regrets. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful offering. Like the, the listing, the track listings, the, the, all the tracks on there are, are really gorgeous. And I think that people, you know, I, I think despite not being able to consume music or art in person, having new content for lack of a better word to, uh, to engage with has been, at least for me personally, has been really helpful over this, over the pandemic. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I, I think that musicians are suffering, but at the same time, the relevance and importance of, of music and art in its various forms, I think has become even greater as people mm -hmm. have been stuck at home and, you know, and facing a, a, an unknown world, right? Yeah. And yeah. music brings comfort. It was so funny. I, I had a chat with a friend of mine, Melanie Penn, brilliant songwriter, mm. <laughs> not a jazz musician. She's more kind of in the gospel, you know, pop world and kind of folk. She, she straddles a bunch of different genres, but she's an sure. amazing songwriter. And, you know, she has been prolific. She doesn't have kids and, and, um, you know, so she's been, I wouldn't say that she's been bored during pandemic, um, yeah, yeah. but she's had a lot of time on her hands. And so she, you know, ended up writing a bunch of songs as a result. And, and we were talking about, you know, is it kind of tone deaf to be releasing happy music during a pandemic? Mm. And I heard on a BBC uh, World Service podcast that in fact, the beats per minute, like, you know, it, when you mm -hmm. analyze songs by how fast they are and how kind of happy or uplifting yeah. um, by the metric of beats per minute, um, you know, we had seen an uptick during pandemic. Mm -hmm. So people yeah. more than ever wanted uplifting music. It wasn't yeah. kind of an um, tone deaf contrast to what the world wanted. So Anyway, I don't know why I yeah. even said that, but no, it was just the, what music awesome. has meant for us, you know? Yeah. yeah. I know um, in talking with several other musicians about this last year, um, a lot of them had projects that they could work on. Some didn't, but the ones that had projects kind of fared a little better because they had something to look forward to, something to kind of work on like how long did it take you to kind of pivot into okay 
now I'm going to move into, you know, creating these, um, you know, like, like your recent, what are you calling your quarantunes? <laughs> quarantunes. Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to kind of like say, okay, I'm going to do something different and then start putting energy into that? Well, you know, I, I was witnessing quarantunes style videos before we, you know, took our own kick at the can. And, mm. um, and, and I know it's just, so I'm sure people know what we're talking about, but just in case they don't, yeah, those yeah. sort of split screen videos where you've got musicians it, from perhaps yeah. from different parts of the world or certainly different parts of a city or country, each recording yeah. and filming themselves from home. And then that video compiles, you know, all these videos into one and yep. then, um, you know, somebody, probably a mix engineer or somebody who has some, some ability with um, audio engineering would, would put all the tracks together and you'd end up with what is kind of the equivalent of, you know, a, not a live show, but, you know, if those musicians were on stage together, that would be a certain sound. But because we can't do that, let's create a virtual stage. And mm -hmm. I liked that idea. I was drawn to it. And I also wanted to see if we could do it in a way that was a little more just sort of unique to my brand and my sound. And my husband, Ben Whitman, is um, not only a drummer, but he, he is a great, great engineer. And so I was very lucky to be able to pivot quickly. Um, and uh, my team in Brooklyn, Holla Creative, they compiled the videos in a way that I thought was maybe a little more interesting than some of the just mm -hmm. basic split screen videos. <laughs> but yeah. now people are getting so fancy with it. And Sarah Gazarik is a freak with the video editing. I, know. I yeah, mean, come on. I know. Those Sage videos are it's unreal. unbelievable. Really and she, you know, she had the time and she took the time. Yeah. Um, and now she's got that skill in her pocket, which I think mm. will serve her beautifully post-pandemic, right? So I think yeah, yeah. I think we're going to still see a demand for content like this, even as we move beyond um, pandemic life. Right. Did you have those those tunes? So you just the last one was the Joni Mitchell um, song. Is that right? The last one you released. Yeah, that wasn't quarantine style. That was oh, okay. just, um, okay, so there was a window <laughs> in November where studios were open. So venues weren't oh, okay. open, but studios were open. And they okay. had a strict cap on the number of bodies in the space and everybody had to be distanced and masked. And so we all went into the studio um, and everybody was in their own little ISO booth, which was great mm. for COVID, right? Like, right. Was and that in Toronto or in that New York? was in Toronto? Yeah, okay. yeah, and um, and actually the Joni one was a little different because it was my husband on percussion, so he and I could be unmasked, and then our bassist mm -hmm. George Kohler um, standing, you know, in our kind of little crescent. Um, he <laughs> they both masked actually, but um, yeah. but I can't because I'm singing. Yeah. So we were able to do that as part of that session, and we're going to be rolling out. I think another five videos from, from that oh, session, awesome. which is exciting. Yeah. With Larnell Lewis and, um, Rich Brown and, uh, a few different players who came, came through that session. Right. So you had, those were kind of on your docket already, these songs that you're, you're producing. Yeah. I wanted to capture songs from out of dust that we hadn't yet done 
a video asset for. So Wendy's mm-hmm. song, Alpha Waves, um, Glass House, The Baker's Daughter, Broken mm-hmm. Vessels, and Take the Day Off. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And then you just, I just watched your uh, video for, shoot, I wrote the name down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, lately, I don't know. I don't know if it's turning 50 or what, but Oh, my satellite brain. maybe. Is that satellite? The, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Satellite. Yeah. That was super cute and fun. Like how oh. fun to do that. Oh man. And that's my team. That's Hall of Creative. So Satellite is an old song, Steve. I wrote it years and years and years ago when I was a new mom and I was mm-hmm. traveling away from my family and missing them profoundly and the way that I would try to connect with them after a gig when I was by myself in my little rental car or wherever I was <laughs> was to picture them with me as mm. as odd as that sounds it would mm-hmm. just sort of bring them closer um in in spirit somehow and so the song that you know which was basically articulating this idea of beaming a loved one mm. closer when you can't be with them physically that yeah. took shape way back when. And then when I started playing satellite as p- part of like pandemic live streams, people were like, oh, I'm crying. I miss yeah. my mom or I miss my, right. you know. And I, w- I realized, oh my gosh, this, this song feels a little bit like a pandemic anthem, at least mm-hmm. in terms of my repertoire. So, so then, um, you know, my, my team, Hala Creative, they had always wanted to do some sort of lyric video and they were stuck at home together. They're married and, and, um, and, uh, Stephanie Holler, she does like kind of the artsy, you know, paper cutouts. And then her husband is an expert in stop motion animation Mm -hmm. and, and, and live action, um, filming. So he filmed everything and the two of them created this like amazing, little uh animation slash lyric video and i released it um as we were coming up on what was kind of vaguely the one year anniversary for a lot of us around the world of lockdown and it was also you know meant to point us towards the better times that i think are coming you know Mm. yeah it was it was super sweet i watched it like three times last That makes me so happy. That's we uh, wanted it to be whimsical and yeah. to feel like warm and you know and sweet. Yeah. Take a listen to Lila's song Satellite.
about listening to that song made me curious about your pro, your writing process and how um like do you where do you start is it lyrics first or baseline or do you have a melody or does it change depending on the the composition it's all of the above so uh <laughs> yeah all of the above so it can be it could could be the lyrics first it could be mm-hmm. a baseline first i love I love bass lines mm, and, um, <laughs> you know, or a melodic hook. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I would say that, you know, I often write or get ideas for songs when I'm on the go. Mm-hmm. And so when we were living in New York, you know, something about New York City and its pulse was like just a constant source of inspiration for songs, for raw material. Mm-hmm. So I always had my voice memos on my iPhone at the ready so that if something came to mind, I would capture it on my phone. And, um, and same for, you know, lyric or story ideas. Yeah. I would write them in the notes section of my phone That's and great. create this kind of little scrapbook. It was like my iPhone was this, you know, scrapbook mm-hmm. of ideas. Um, and then there's usually a concentrated period of time, short but concentrated, um, where I go to my happy place for writing, which is the Banff Center in the Rocky mm. Mountains. Mm-hmm. And I'm there for like as, as few as three days, um, but as many as six days. And, and I try to just churn out a bunch of material and bring those raw ideas together to create songs. And um, yeah, and uh, it's, it's all of the above. It's the baseline is the starting place. Yeah. It's the lyrics, it's a melody. Right. Sometimes it's everything at once. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So walk me through a day at Banff. So you get there and then like, what's your, what's your process when you go into the room to, to start fleshing stuff out? Oh my gosh. I love Banff so much. We are so lucky in Canada and actually yeah, it's, people, people flock there from the world over. Um, yeah. It's a program that welcomes um, lots of international participants. And so in my case, um, I, you know, you get, you get a room, you get assigned a room or a hut (laughs) (laughs) and you have a beautiful piano. If you're, if you're a musician and you've requested a piano, you get like a gorgeous Mm. Yamaha grand in tune, you know, and there are always, because it's Banff, they, you know, all the spaces have like big windows where you're looking out at the mountains and elk walking by. (laughs) Like, it's crazy. And so, and the other thing too, Steve, that's amazing about their setup is they, they have this um, beautiful uh, cafe um, called Vistas where you Mm -hmm. get like a full buffet meal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So all Mm -hmm. your needs are being met So I'd wake up, you know, go and have a gorgeous breakfast. And then I would, uh, sorry, my my son is just 
puttering That's around right. in the background here. <laughs> if I sound distracted, welcome to my That's world. Okay. And right. uh, Life with a 10 year Right, exactly. So I would have, you know, a beautiful big breakfast and then I'd head over to my hut and or my room, take in the scenery, which in and of, in and of itself is uplifting and inspiring. Mm. And then I'd, I'd have usually um, some physical papers at that point. So mm-hmm. I love tactile things. Um, so, you know, I, I'll take ideas that are maybe stored on my iPhone and then I'll start to write them out in a journal or I'll begin to sketch out some ideas on manuscript paper. Okay. And then I have that stuff almost surrounding me like in a circle or semicircle. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, you know, kind of, I know this sounds pretty airy fairy. <laughs> no, but no, I'll, not at all. I am somebody, I mean, I believe the writing process is both a discipline and then I also think I totally believe in this idea of a muse and mm. that it's very intuitive and almost spiritual. So, so I'll kind of say a prayer or like, okay, where, like, where am I going to start today? And intuitively yeah. I will just feel drawn maybe to an idea more than some of the others. And so I'll grab that, I'll pop it up on the, the music rest on the piano. Um, and I just start to play and, experiment and if i mean i've definitely had days where there's like a huge wall or block (laughs) and i don't know (laughs) where to begin and i've only got four more days let's say so what am i going to do and when that happens sometimes i just try to like just improvise play some sounds on the piano and coax myself into um just a relaxed place where the ideas Mm. and music can flow i think the hardest thing and I don't know if any other any other songwriters have spoken to this, is to get those judges off your shoulder or out of your head, right? Because I will scrutinize and judge some days every mm. idea before they even have a chance to really be born. Yeah. And so you have to let ideas emerge, even if you're like, oh, that's terrible. Because, yeah. you know, it's just part of the process. It's so funny at... I listened to this interview with Jerry Seinfeld. And oh, was, wow. I love him. He, he was talking about the creative process. And he's this. I wrote this down because I thought it was a gem. He said, when you're creating, you need to treat yourself like a toddler. Like you need to like yeah. nurture yourself and just be yeah. loving and like everything is great. And then you have to do the opposite when you're editing. Right. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. I I love that because a lot of people would talk about the nurturing part, um, you know, and, and where you treat yourself like a child and, and allow, just make room for play and experimentation and failure and, you Mm -hmm. know, all of the above. But then not many people would pivot to kind of the rigorous process of editing, which I think is critical um and that's actually where my husband comes in he'll (laughs) he he's almost a co-writer you know i'll bring him these songs before we put them to tape and and then we really put them under the microscope and we get we get really you know critical in a way Mm -hmm. so oh that's so cool yeah do you the two of you flesh out the arrangements together somewhat somewhat so I'm musically speaking, I would say most of the ideas come from me, but he will make Mm -hmm. suggestions. He's a brilliant musician and writer himself. Mm. 
Um, but he's really good with lyrics. I tend towards oh, wow. cliches and, <laughs> and he'll come in and just be like, no, you've got to change the way that you said that, you know? And that's been one of his greatest strengths um, in terms of our, you know, the pre-production process for us. Mm. Really cool. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, so, okay. So you started as a classical pianist. Did you, did you get a degree in classical piano from the Royal Conservatory? Yeah, I was really young. So I <laughs> went through the program, you know, it's designed for kids, right? The, yeah. the um, Royal Conservatory of Music method. And mm. I had reached a level they call ARCT, which is like beyond grade 10. So kind of like mm-hmm. grade 11, grade 12. Yeah. And um, yeah, and so I... I reached ARCT when I was 12 and, you know, had these lofty dreams of becoming a concert pianist. And, um, yeah. And, uh, I was in a car accident when I was 15 and, Mm. um, you know, I mean, it wasn't like as bad as it sounds, but it did affect my arm. And as a result, um, those dreams of becoming a concert pianist were, were dashed and, And that was, uh, you know, that coincided with me being introduced to jazz and considering a different path. Um, So how did that, I'm curious of that transition. So like you're quite accomplished as, I mean, listening to your earlier recordings where you solo a bit more, uh, you're, you're quite an accomplished jazz pianist. And I'm, I'm curious how, how you made that transition. Were you, did you transcribe a lot of, or learn stuff from recordings? Like, like did. how did you dive into that? That's exactly right. So for some people, you know, it's um, methodical and you sit down with Nicholas Lenimsky's Thesaurus of Scales <laughs> right. and Patterns or the Charlie Parker Omnibook and you yep. learn, you know, all that stuff in every key and Mm-hmm. And it's, again, a real discipline. For me, um, I loved learning by osmosis and just mm-hmm. listening to the songs and solos that thrilled me. Yeah. And and then, like, I, so a couple of examples would be, um, there's a pianist, John Stetch, and he has a duo song. He plays with Seamus, uh, Seamus Blake. The saxophonist, yeah, Yeah. and um, they're both Canadian. And there's a song called Ocean Floors that um, something about it uh, connects with contemporary classical music Mm -hmm. and that language, which I really could identify with, especially in my early days as a jazz pianist. Mm -hmm. So I would transcribe that to get inside those colors and that language. And... And then, you know, Keith Jarrett was another favorite, um, mm. again, for the way that he kind of brought jazz and classical together. Yeah. And, um, and then compositionally, you know, musicians like Kenny Wheeler and his big mm. band writing, yeah. Maria Schneider, mm-hmm. and um, i trying to think of who else I... Oh, Jeff Keezer. So Jeff Keezer, yeah. yes, his... His album, Zero One, which is actually kind of difficult to find online, Hmm. that album was like an education in and of itself. And I saw him Hmm. live, and that was how I discovered him. And he came to Humber College, where Mm -hmm. I was studying. 
and he was playing solo and and he was covering songs by Bjork and Radiohead. <laughs> and I yeah. thought that was the hippest thing ever and wanted to get inside yeah. how he was blending jazz and pop. And so I transcribed his entire performance of Venus as a boy, including the solo. Mm. And that was how I got inside the language of jazz piano, or at least the way that yeah. I wanted to speak it. But you're right, I've stepped way back from <laughs> soloing. I'm always farming out solos now, which yeah. I probably has to do a little bit with having lost some courage and confidence as, oh. a, as a jazz pianist, which is sad. Yeah. yeah. But even still, you're comping, you're playing on the song. I mean, it's, it's, it's very polished. And, and I was like, that's not an easy transition because I just, I have a dear friend who lives in France and she's, she's a harpsichordist and pianist and mm. she had a student. Um, she, well, they've, you know, like every musician, their, their, <laughs> their bread and butter has been sort of stopped, stopped. And so she was teaching online and she had a student who wanted to learn jazz. And she was like, how do I, <laughs> like, I think I need to learn how to play jazz. And it was like, it's a big shift for a classical musician to, to then to look at dots written on a page and then all of a sudden to just play what, you know, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> and I would cry. I would be physically ill. When I first started playing jazz in, in late high school, I would be physically ill before like ensemble rehearsals because the idea of improvising was so terrifying to me. And, you know, I think when you're trained in classical music, so much of that is about interpretation, but you got to get it right. You got to play the mm -hmm. right notes exactly as yeah. they're written. And if you fumble or miss some, that's, con those, that's considered, you know, kind of points against you. Right, exactly. And so in jazz, like it could not be more the opposite. And yet, you know, what you come up with, I mean, it doesn't need to be sensical. It could be like completely random, but, but I, I think that all of us would agree that even free jazz players have learned to speak the language of jazz. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the language of jazz? I mean, there's a big conversation, but yeah. <laughs> there are some fundamentals right. that I think all of yeah. us would argue um, every, any person who calls himself a jazz musician should probably have touched base with whether through study or listening, you know, or both. Yeah. When you're when you were transcribing, did you write those out or was I it? I did. You did. Yeah, I did, and part of that was because <laughs> I'm impatient, <laughs> and uh -huh. I just wanted the gratification. Yeah. of like being able to reproduce exactly what I was hearing as quickly as possible. I actually mm -hmm. think that while writing stuff down is incredibly tedious, it's also a little bit lazier in that if you're committing it all to memory piece by piece, I think that would take much longer, but it would probably um, become more ingrained if you do it that way. Yeah. You know, I, I have that similar thought, but then in talking with, with like Joel from and, and Clarence Penn yeah. about it. The, and, and even one of my students who, his name is Garrett Baxter. He's a great bass player. And he, he's, um, he went to the University of Oregon and 
Garrett told me like he writes it out because it's faster and it gets him to the music quicker. But yeah. what Joel and Clarence talked about was you're internalizing it on a different level mm. when you write it out. Like your mm. visual, there's the visual mm-hmm. aspect yep. of seeing those shapes. And it's not that you're skipping a, a step. Uh, and I was totally from the camp of don't write it out, like yeah. learn it totally by ear and then yeah. write it out if you wanted to. But I'm changing my tune on it. I think that there's a, I think there's a real value in write in writing it out, seeing it, and it just it leads to digesting it in a in an even deeper way. Yeah, you know, I mean, certainly the brain and the way the brain is processing that information, if it's both auditory and visual, um, that's literally flexing a different muscle yeah. and somehow imprinting it on the visual cortex instead of just the audio or auditory cortex right so right. it's like <laughs> i'm sure there's like a super sciencey nerdy neuroplasticity kind of <laughs> you know um way of contextualizing that i do want to yeah. say just because i've perhaps against my better judgment i'm i'm now in the tiktok world and and i, I <laughs> have i have extremely mixed feelings about it but um, what's been interesting in watching how my peers are using that platform, there's a young singer. Her name is Katie George. Her last name mm-hmm. looks like Georgi, G-Y-O-R-G-Y. Okay. She's everywhere now. Like, you're going to be hearing about her soon. She's on all these major Spotify playlists. And um, she's kind of the new darling of vocal jazz, certainly in Canada. And I think she will be internationally soon, too. Mm. But anyway, her... Her TikTok videos could not be more perfect for that medium because basically it's her going like just singing all these crazy rapid fire solos in scat. Wow. And like it's freakish. It's freakish, which again, I think TikTok lo- favors people who are a yep. little freakish, right? So so she's freakish, but it's like amazing too. And um not just impressive, but like for her, it was a means to an end, not just mm-hmm. look what I can do. And so she's transcribed, I think she said over 600 instrumental solos. Oh my God. And this woman is in her 20s. And, you know, the facility she's gained yeah. having done all of that is actually bananas. And, but it <laughs> serves who she is as an artist. And yeah. the thing that, why I'm mentioning this at all is I saw one of these posts and I, I said, okay, do you memorize all of these? Like how in the world could you commit 600 plus instrumental solos to memory and retain them enough to be able to execute them on command? And she was like, no, yeah, they're all memorized. And I was like, holy cow. Okay, so you're a genius. Also, you will never get Alzheimer's. Like, like, you know, like that brain is, you know, the way that she has exercised her brain, I, I would love to see what her brain looks like having developed all that, you know, committed yeah. all that material to memory. No Isn't that wow. something? Yeah, check That's her out. Remarkable. Did you <laughs> did you transcribe some Maria Schneid? Like that would seem like an enormous task. <laughs> like no, trying to transcribe. I didn't. I, I transcribed I transcribed some Kenny Wheeler, but just the tunes, okay. not not yeah, yeah. like the instrument, the orchestrations. Yeah. However, as I speak with you now, I'm looking up at this heavy book. I have many large university-style textbooks 
that mm-hmm. I bought with the best of intentions, Maria Schneider, Evanescence Complete Scores. Oh, I have never gone juicy. through that book. <laughs> totally juicy, and I should mail it to you because, or like send it to the music library at Humber so mm. someone will benefit from all that gorgeous information. Right. I have that. I have an, like the equivalent of that, I think, by by Fred Sturm. Oh, and yeah, Fred Sturm. Just Great a arranger. bunch of these, you know, educational yeah books it was like i was forcing myself to learn in a different in a way that just wasn't natural to who i am and so unsurprisingly they've all just been collecting they just and, sat there yeah just sat there and these are like 50 dollars <laughs> books you know which right. for a student was no small thing <laughs> have you met maria yes okay so so i once dreamt or dreamed of becoming a big band arranger that mm-hmm. was my dream 21 year old lila wanted to be maria schneider mm-hmm. and so i actually got a grant to study with jim mcneely in new york mm-hmm. and um anyway while i was still at humber i had written with no training um a big band score it was an arrangement of stella by starlight that i called and not a dream which is one of the lyrics from stella mm-hmm. and um you know really made it my own and that was why i didn't call it stella by starlight arranged by light mm-hmm. of the alley and and so the big band at humber performed it and when maria came to you know run clinics and and do her thing they performed it for her. Oh wow. Which was terrifying for me, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And and she was great. She was really gracious, but you know, I remember her saying at one point that I think I like took a couple of really quick turns with the music and I remember her saying you ripped the blanket right off of me, you know, there. <laughs> <laughs> so she wasn't afraid to be critical, which is giving somebody your best, right? If you do it right, um, Mm -hmm. I've also been on the other side of somebody doing it very, in a very wrong and damaging way, which Mm. was uh, Kenny Werner. And I feel so badly, uh, you know, I don't mean to throw him under the bus because I know that he's done a lot of great things for musicians. But Maria was an example of offering constructive criticism in a way that was very gracious. Yeah, I -hmm. love her writing. And yeah, she seems like a really... Really awesome, really awesome lady. Yeah, I mean, gosh, to to be doing, to have accomplished all that she has, yeah. and just just to keep a big band. <laughs> I know, right? Functional, like, you know what I mean. But I guess yeah. what she does, you know, I don't know that she's ever really toured her big no. band extensively. My sense is that she writes and records with them. And we'll perform locally in New York. But then, mm. you know, I, I feel like she travels, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, she'll travel around the world and work with local big yep. bands and, you know, run clinics and then also maybe do a performance where they're playing some of her music. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so you didn't set out to be a vocalist, but I'm curious... <laughs> Was there singing in your house? Like you obviously have sang prior to like saying, okay, I'm going to now start singing. Um, Was there music like that in your house, singing in your house? Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
you know, everyone in the Bialy family, so myself, my three sisters, and my mom, not my dad, <laughs> mm-hmm. unless you put on a Shirley Bassey record and then he'd be, <laughs> you know, singing along. But anyway, so so we loved to sing in harmony and we were all mm. musical and every Christmas, you know, at the local Baptist church, we would do the, the Christmas Eve candlelight service. And mm. because my mom is German, we would always hear German hymns in our, mm. our house, especially German carols, um, the Vienna boys choir and that kind yeah. of thing. And so, um, at these Christmas Eve services, there was a moment where, you know, the congregation would sing silent night, but then, you know, a cappella, they would switch to the German lyrics and nobody really spoke German right. except we four girls. So, so we would sing Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht in, yeah. in harmony. And, um, my mom was always playing music. She had CBC radio mm-hmm. on like all day, every day. And at that point, it was mostly a classical station. And I think that's Mm. where I developed my really deep love of classical music in all its forms, where it just comforted me. And I, she would blast opera opera, (laughs) uh, on CBC Radio 2 opera. They had an opera show on Sunday mornings. And she would blast that to get me out of bed to go to church, which was kind of mean. That's but hilarious. as a result, I would end up like belting out opera tunes that yeah. I that I would hear. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. Where are you in the lineup of your sisters? I'm the baby. Oh, me! I'm baby too. Oh, no, there you go. There you go. Yeah, lots are, of advantages to being the baby, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think from a from a parenting perspective, you have definitely an advantage. Yeah. Over the first one, but <laughs> totally they, exactly. Are they, any of them still uh, like involved in music, whether professionally or just um, non-professionally? No, no. My no. eldest sister, Susan Bialy, she's a doctor, but mm-hmm. um, she is, uh, each of them still show their musical inclinations. Mm-hmm. And Susan, I think her way of manifesting that um, was, you know, after she had, almost finished her um her what what do you call it residency for er surgery to become an er surgeon um she just dropped it all moved to mexico and became a flamenco dancer oh my god dancer (laughs) and i think that was her way of connecting with the artist yeah the artist within her and she's still you know she's back in canada and and she still Mm -hmm. practices as a doctor but um, you know, dance is still something that I think she connects with um, and that feeds her musical soul because of the rhythm of it, right? Mm, yeah. And then my sister Tanya, um, she, I think, still will will sing and play guitar just by her lonesome yeah. um, as uh, something that comforts and brings joy. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Vanessa, the second youngest, um, I think she's just somebody who blasts music in her car and will will sing along, right? So, yeah. 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 Do you guys, when you get together, do you sing ever? No. It's interesting. I think maybe because I'm out there doing it professionally, everyone's Mm. a little shy in their way when we get together. (laughs) We used to sometimes gather around the family piano, which Mm -hmm. is still in my parents' home out west. And 
now, sadly, we rarely have Christmas all together. But yeah. I think the last time we did, which would have been, Steve, oh my gosh, probably like 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, we did gather around the piano. Yeah. And, uh, and I, of course, was the one sitting at the piano and <laughs> everyone was singing along. Yeah. That was the case of my house too. My eldest sister, she was a, um, a music, a choir a middle school choir director. And oh, cool. Play amazing pianist. And, and every time if we were all four together, which wasn't very frequently as adults, um, definitely growing up, it was prerequisite that we would all sing uh, at Christmas for my parents. But then, you know, there were just a few handful of times as adults that that, that happened. But it was always pretty fun to sing with my siblings. I love that you also have three older siblings. That's great. <laughs> I know. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. This is one of my favorite songs done exquisitely by Lila. Both sides now. Rows and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the Canyons everywhere. I've looked at clouds that way, but now they only block the sun. They rain and snow on everyone. So many things I would have done. The clouds got in my way. The clouds from both sides now From up and down And still somehow It's clouds illusions I recall I really don't know clouds At all Moons and Junes and Ferris I'm going to go a little fanboy here because you, uh, you've you toured and performed with one of your heroes and one of mine, um, Sting. Yeah. And when you were talking just now about singing in church, I realized that that was my, my first exposure to you. And I really didn't know it was the On a Winter's Night DVD. <laughs> yeah. And you're singing in this gorgeous Durham chapel. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking how surreal and wonderful that experience must have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yep. <laughs> so uh, here's what I want to ask. So you, I, I know how you, you know, you, you auditioned here in the States and then you flew to, to Tuscany for the rehearsals. Is that right? Yep. That's exactly and, right. And what was that like? So you pull up to this, like, he, I don't know, he's got like grapes and olives <laughs> and everything growing and you walk inside. What was that first experience in rehearsal like? Okay. So, so I, yeah. So, so Joe Laurie, Lisa Fisher, and myself, we were all based in, oh, and Steve, Steve Santoro. We can't forget mm. him because yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. four person group initially. That's and right. then, 
eventually Sting decided he just wanted the three girls and it was no slight to Steve because he's yeah. unbelievable. It was just aesthetically where Sting landed. Yeah. But anyway, um, the four of us all met at the airport um, and, you know, flew to Italy together and got rounded mm-hmm. up and brought to his crazy villa. Right. And, which was like a fairy tale and experience, it, fairy tale experience in and of itself. Sure. And we each got escorted to our like palatial suites with, <laughs> you know, ensuite bathroom and mosquito net around this like crazy bed with canopy, mm. like princess like bed. And, <laughs> and, and that was day one. Yeah. And then, you know, I think they wanted to give us a moment to kind of, recover from the international trip the flight yeah Uh, but it was like when are we going to meet the man you know (laughs) and i had long dreamed of working with sting but i had always thought it would be as a pianist because that was Mm -hmm. really my first instrument and um i was a huge kenny kirkland fan oh yeah and i had seen that um you know, Nellie McKay, or is it McKay? Nellie McKay, mm-hmm. um, this young pianist singer who went to MSM, Manhattan School of Music. She had done some stuff with Sting, and I was like, well, maybe I'll get my shot someday. Sure. But there I was as a singer, and, you know, awaiting this moment. And we were actually in kind of the kitchen area mm-hmm. when he just dropped in. And <laughs> what's interesting is I'm still in touch with him. Um, mm-hmm. semi-regularly yeah. and um, this is so much his way I think he knows how overwhelmed people are by his yeah. presence <laughs> yeah. especially musicians because yeah. it's not just the star power but it's like the sheer magnitude of what he's able to do yeah. musically right he's he's a force so he just kind of quickly breezed through the space and hugged all of us, gave us a kiss on the cheek, like very, mm. very warm, but also very quick mm-hmm. um, so that none of us could settle into our awkwardness, right? And, right. <laughs> and But then it was like this immersion with him where we were thrust into like 10-hour-long days. And wow. what was so cool about the experience was that we didn't just, rehearse with him for hours on end, which we did. Um, We were like eating meals with him and sharing stories Mm. and doing yoga with him in the the mornings. Wow. You know, it was like, and and taking walks around the grounds with his dog compass. And like, Mm. it just, you know, what on earth pinch me? Like, where, where am I? (laughs) And what is this magical place? So, um, but I got to see, I got to see then, and again, to this day, this is who he is, Mm. how incredibly rigorous he is as a musician. He, he is a perfectionist. Mm. um, And what I love about Sting that I didn't expect was this beautiful mix of that childlike playfulness that I think mm-hmm. I think sustains all of us musicians, yeah, um, and helps us weather all the ups and downs of the music industry. And he's not immune to those things, mm-hmm. um, even though he's a star. Um, so that playfulness coupled with like 
unbelievable discipline and drive mm. um, where he was always the first to show up at rehearsals and the last to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> how would he, how would the rehearsal go? Like what he was directing it? I'm certain. But yes. Like... Yes. But <laughs> here's the thing about Sting. So he's incredibly specific about what he wants mm-hmm. and articulating kind of the parameters mm-hmm. and at the same time asking each, each musician to step into their own. Mm-hmm. And like he's hired me because of who I am as a right. musician. So instead of just going, well, I'm going to force you into this box and you're going to do exactly as I say, mm-hmm. he is drawing the musician out um, and at the same time, you know, guiding them towards what he envisions is kind of the, I don't want to say circus master. That's a terrible metaphor, but right. like that, you know, and the, or- yeah. the, the conductor, the conductor, you know, yeah. 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 And then you were, what tour that, that recording didn't tour, did it? Oh, very minimally. So um, we did some promotional mm-hmm. appearances in New York. So the view and Letterman, um, yeah. and a couple other things, the today show, and then um, we played in four cities. So Durham was the big one. Yeah. And that was where we captured the DVD. And then because it was a seasonal project, you know, we then in December of that year, um, we performed in Paris, mm. in New York, and in Baden-Baden. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And Baden-Baden was the last show of the, quote, tour Um, and, uh, yeah. And then every now and then the, there'll be an opportunity for that group to gather together again, or a few members from the group. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, the, the lighting of the Rockefeller Christmas tree a few years later. Um, and I was really grateful to, to be brought back into the fold for that. That's one of my favorite albums of his. It's just, I play it every winter. Like, it's like, is it winter yet? I'm going to put that CD on it. So. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's really gorgeous. It sort of represents, you know, except I guess he's covering, he's using lyrics from other sources um, for most of that album. But musically, it represents all my favorite things about him. You know, Mm -hmm. the chamber element, the capacity to to incorporate world music and Mm -hmm. and, um, classical chamber music. But then songs that are earworms and get inside Mm. your head and 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 that that are so evocative all his music is so evocative you just get transported to another world absolutely gives me chills even just talking about (laughs) it you know so that was did you tour any it was that the only tour experience with him or did you do other stuff any other music with sting um you know it's been really piecemeal for me yeah so um what happened was we got pregnant with josh while i was doing if on a winter's night Mm -hmm. which was i don't don't want to say terrible timing because when when is a baby the joy and gift of a baby terrible timing but you know when i was 29 yeah it was less than ideal and uh you know um but when i shared the news with him 
he was so kind and said, mm. how wonderful, wonderful for us all. That was his response. Mm. Um, but he was pivoting to the next project. So that's another thing about Sting that's quite formidable. You'll be touring with him and doing one, one project, and he's already having conversations with management about the next thing, right? Right. So he's almost in two places at once. And so he was already dreaming up what he would do for Symphonicities. And that put my husband, Ben, on his radar. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so I got pregnant and that kind of just naturally wound down what I would be doing with Sting, at least for that season. Yeah. But then Ben got approached about playing percussion on the Symphonicities tour, but he bowed out because uh, it conflicted with the timing of our son's birth and he just didn't want to miss that yeah so that was huge i wanted yeah. him to go on tour with sting but <laughs> but he wanted to be a dad which i He's, love yeah um, he had his priorities straight he sure did steve he sure did but anyway fast forward um to 2015 so years later yeah you know we had stayed in touch with him via email and when he came to perform um in Toronto, we had moved temporarily from from Brooklyn to to Toronto um, mm. to have our child, just to have some support. And uh, you know, Symphonicities came through town, and I was side stage with Joshua and a little snuggly. They had sent me a Sting onesie for Josh. Oh, that's so cute! <laughs> so there I was, side stage, sweating, just dripping with sweat in the middle of July, and Sting oh. kept coming side stage between songs and like patting Josh's back and, and like it was so so sweet. sweet um but then fast forward to 2015 he had written this musical The Last Ship yeah and we were back in Brooklyn you know trying to make life work as a young family and he asked both Ben and I to um learn that book and and we you know did again little whirlwind of promotional mm -hmm. stuff with him um, around the last ship, yeah. you know, experiencing Sting in yet another musical context. <laughs> right. Right? Like, the, once again, the genius yeah. and, and, and courage yeah. that he possesses. I mean, and it's just the driving force to create... Mm -hmm. I think will carry him for all his days. Yeah. And um, I was lucky to work with him again very recently. I, I oh, couldn't cool. believe it. He emailed me and wanted me to be involved in workshopping some new material. So that was oh, amazing. Exciting. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm very envious. He's like um, my girlfriend always. Well, my girlfriend and the person who helps me with social media, they're like, well, if you could like, what's your bucket list of people to interview? And I'm like, well, staying, of course, but that, you know, that, you know, the odds of that happening are very slim. But you never know. You should yeah. um, get Joe Laurie on your show. And yeah. uh, she's still the one yeah. who really has, you know, a really tight connection yeah. with him. And um, <laughs> she could be a fun stepping stone. Oh yeah. You know? I would love to. I would love to talk to Joe. She's amazing. She's unreal. Performer. She's unreal. Yeah. <laughs> this is from her last studio album, Out of Dust. Here's the funky, groovy sugar.
Because I'm uninspired Sugar, because it works so fast Sugar so sweet, it's gonna help me last heroes have you have you met or had a chance to uh, perform with well i've been one step removed from bjork on a few occasions mm. now and that has just like oh my gosh i mean <laughs> so i i think she's unbelievable yeah and the sort of close brushes i've had without actually meeting her have been you know so I was on tour with Suzanne Vega mm -hmm. in Perth, Australia, <laughs> and uh, was given the option to go see Joe Cocker live, which I did. And I'm not a huge Joe Cocker fan, in all honesty, but mm -hmm. the band, 50% of the band were going. And then I got home to the hotel uh, later that night or got back to the hotel, only to learn that the other 50% of the band had bumped into Bjork in the lobby of the hotel Oh my gosh. And was informed that she had a show and was invited and they got to go <laughs> see Bjork live, which is another oh dream of mine, never mind meeting yeah. her. And then I have I've worked with a few people who have worked with her like Caleb Burns. Mm. Um he's a brilliant composer and um multi-instrumentalist living in New York. He's kind of in the new music classical scene, but mm -hmm. um as a result, unsurprisingly has worked with Bjork cuz she's just done Again, she she uses yeah. symphonic palettes um, in a lot of her music. And then the other thing was that my friend actually taught one of her kids, or I, I think she just has the one kid, but my friend taught mm -hmm. her 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 child and actually played one of my music videos for for Bjork's child, which I thought was fun. <laughs> I've never met her. I think she's amazing. Um, another hero that some people maybe wouldn't expect is uh, Bono just because I oh, love, right. I just love, I love who he is in the mm. world. You know, I love that he genuinely has been so involved with yeah. really important causes and social justice and, yeah. and not just to make him look good as a rock star, yeah. but he's really, you know, you listen to his songs and what he's singing about and you know that it's, he's the real deal. Yeah. Um, he's also such a great example of economy in songwriting. Mm -hmm. You know, he might get criticized for the simplicity of, of the harmony. Um, but to me, they're anthems and yep. the clarity of the writing um, is so 
powerful. It's why I think that's why billions of people connect with his music. Yeah. So he's another hero. Bobby McFerrin is another. Oh. Um, I know a lot of people who've worked with him, but I've never, I've seen him perform a few times, but I've never um, met him. We actually opened for him in Pori, Finland with oh, Chikoria wow. um, years ago, but I was far too shy to oh. introduce myself. Yeah, and Chikoria, so, so sad. I know. I know. <laughs> that one really, really sent ripples uh, mm. through the jazz world. Yeah. That we're still feeling now because he was such an icon. And did you know that he was, he's had something like almost 90 grand, Grammy nominations over the years? That's astounding. It's, it's <laughs> astounding. I think he's the most nominated jazz musician of all time. Yeah. That's not surprising. Right, exactly. Wow. And you've won uh, the equivalent of a Grammy in I have. Canada, the Juno Award. Congratulations. And then you were n- nominated, was it last year? This year. This year you're nominated. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's a bizarre. This is always a strange <laughs> thing with awards shows or awards in general. Yeah. Is that, like, There's the year the album was released, and yep. then there's the year of the nomination, which is usually the following year. Yeah. And so it's a bit confusing, right? Like, okay, so Out of Dust is a 2020 album, but it's been nominated for a 2021 Juno. And I could never figure it out with the Grammys because yeah. even though the Grammys happened in 2021, I'm still pretty sure that they called it the 2020 Grammys. <laughs> Am I right? I could not I figure it so. out. I know. I was watching, yeah. well, parts of it because Kate yeah. was nominated and so yes. was Sarah. And- um, but what's the, is it a similar process that so you submit for consideration and, and then there's like, who comprises the, do you know who comprises the Juno? Like who decides? Yeah. So it's actually a completely different process. Okay. So there's no four year consideration round where a 12,000 members of, you know, the Karis, um, I forget what it's called. Canadian. Oh my gosh. Academy of recorded sound. I, I, I can't, yeah. I can't even, I don't even know what the acronym is, but sure. But Keras is our equivalent of the recording Academy. Mm-hmm. And you do have to be a member to submit a project. Mm-hmm. However, um, who gets nominated and ultimately wins is determined by a s- relatively small but fairly rigorously vetted group of jurors. I think it mm. might be 10 jurors per category. Wow. Okay. And they try to get, you know, they try to get kind of a broad, like a diverse group, as diverse a group as they can um, to represent different aspects of that category, in my case, vocal jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they're the ones who separate from one another. They don't know who any of the other jurors are. Um, that, that information is only published after the awards are issued. Um, but they all anonymously, you know, I think they like vote for their top X number of albums and then, you know, it's all run through an algorithm and then it's whittled down to the top 10 and then the top five. And, um, and finally, you know, um, by virtue of that, uh, you know, putting it all kind of into this calculus, they determine who the winner is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's how it goes. There may be some discussion that happens <laughs> once those 
names and projects are arrived at, but yeah. I've never been a juror. So I actually don't okay. have, I don't okay. have insider insight, you know, into, into that process. Yeah. So I was thinking about that and the other differences between what it's like to be a musician in Canada and what it's like to be in the U S and, um, it feels to me like there's a lot more uh, support from the Canadian, mm. yeah, not government necessarily, but maybe. Yeah, no, no, yes, <laughs> absolutely from the government, absolutely from For the government. Arts mm -hmm. Than the U.S., which is, I'm, you know, enviable. <laughs> yeah, I, I. It's interesting. I've had this conversation with a few of my friends stateside. Mm -hmm. And some of them have felt that actually it puts musicians as a dis at a disadvantage because you never actually work towards a self-sustaining career mm. um, when you're propped up by government funding. Mm. But I vehemently disagree. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. I get it. As one who is completely, you know, just tied to writing and reporting on grant after grant after grant for hours on end. Mm -hmm. um, I, I spend far more time at my computer than I do at the piano. Mm. Um, that is not a good thing. <laughs> but I'm able to, you know, dream of and then, um, you know, move from concept to, uh, what's the word, realization, Yeah, these various projects because of that support. Right. So... Yeah, I I feel extremely blessed that we have the access that we do. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. What's the scene? How would you describe the difference between, say, the the jazz scene in New York as opposed to Toronto? Oh, <laughs> well, this is going to be on the record. So, <laughs> um, we can always edit it out if you don't. No, want. no, it's okay. It's okay. I think it's important. I'm just so, let me start with just what I feel are some of the strengths of the Toronto jazz scene. Mm -hmm. You will find some of the best musicians in the world in Toronto. Mm in terms of ability. Mm -hmm. These are people who have honed their craft and, you know, really are incredibly disciplined um, and support one another. I think that there is a real community here mm. um, nice. that people can tap into that is supportive and um, functional. But I think Toronto is a little more prone to boxes and boxing okay. musicians. And I had to leave Toronto to really stretch my wings. Mm. Um, and I had fear in returning here from New York and that I might get put back in a box. Yeah. Um, it hasn't really happened, mm -hmm. but I do think, and this was, this was a surprise to me. I thought I would move to New York and there'd be more boxes, you know, hmm. that the jazz police would just have way more of a presence <laughs> in New York, you know, yeah. all when these Juilliard grads. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, you, you call this jazz. <laughs> and, uh, but I actually found the exact opposite musicians yeah. that I, that were like the pinnacle of jazz to mm. me as a fledgling jazzer they were 
totally crossing over into other territory, mm-hmm. like the Je- the John Ellis's of this world and Joel Fromm and, yeah. you know, and Jeffrey Keezer and um, Kurt Elling and, oh, yeah. you know, and, and, and I was just rubbing shoulders. Is that the expression? Oh. I, you know, I was with all elbows, these. Elbows, maybe. Rubbing elbows. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. I always mix up my expressions. But, um, you know, I was really lucky to be alongside all these other musicians who I had, had admired for years. And mm. suddenly there I was in the scene almost immediately mm. with them. And, and it was interesting to see how just being in New York leveled the playing field wow. um, and how I could, you know, ask Jill Fromm to play on a gig with me at, you know, the local nightclub mm-hmm. and he'd happily do so. Donnie McCaslin, same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Linda, oh, like what on earth? I and, know. And then She's Jeffrey Keezer would show up a, at a gig and yeah. Chris Potter would be in the audience and yeah. Kurt Elling. And I thought, <laughs> what, this is, what the heck? And it was just evidence of that community and mm. that there isn't this sense that there isn't a hierarchy. Yeah. We're just all in it together. And I do feel that that's really special and unique to New York. I haven't found that anywhere else. Do you think that that will return? I mean, it feels a little tenuous that Mm, a lot of people, including Joel, have left New York. You're kidding. I didn't know that. He's in Connecticut right now. Right, which is where he's from, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's, I, I think Clarence was talking about it saying, you know, it's been, it's been decentralized jazz is New York is no longer the center of the jazz universe. You've got the, uh, the Herbie Hancock Institute out here in LA. Right. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just really curious, you know, post vaccines and pandemic, like what, what the future holds for New York city in that regard. Yeah. You know, before pandemic hit, there was already an exodus of musicians where, um, you know, and we were part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my husband, who's 17 years my senior, he lived with Dave Douglas when he first moved oh, wow. to New York. And he's sort of from that generation. Mm-hmm. And um, so he'd been there, you know, 25 years, I think, before yeah. we moved. So really firmly entrenched in that scene. And we left in 2015 and and we noticed a lot of other musicians moving many of them to Nashville, um, huh. a handful to Austin, yep. some to LA, um, because, you know, life in New York was kind of unsustainable, especially if you were going to have a family yeah. or if you had some other priorities about quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so that was hard to see. And it was changing the landscape of the music scene in New York and people would talk about that. And some of them were older musicians, especially would really grieve how Mm -hmm. the scene was changing. But I, I, I still think the heart of it is there and I don't think it's left. And I mean, what is New York if not resilient? Mm -hmm. And I think that that resilience that characterizes the city characterizes every aspect of New York, including the jazz scene. And so I, I think we're going to still see, you know, the best things that we love about the jazz scene survive mm. 
in New York. I hope for I decades hope so to too. come. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did the how did you get the CBC gig, that Saturday Night Jazz <laughs> thing? How did that land in your lap? Well, that was a silver lining of moving back up to Canada. So, um, you know, it's interesting. We're all kind of watching each other online and we don't even realize, you know, <laughs> for me as a musician, I often feel like I'm a tree falling in the woods, but people mm. are paying attention. And there was a producer at CBC Music, Lauren Hancock, mm-hmm. um, who was a fan of mine as a musician. And she was observing my movements and it registered that we bo- we'd moved back up to Canada and so when Tim Tamashiro, my predecessor at CBC Music, which was formerly Radio 2, CBC Radio 2, right. when he reached his 10-year anniversary and, you know, CBC Music was making some changes, um, I was on Lauren's radar. And I was actually on tour in Sweden hmm. when she wrote to me and said, hey, would you consider filling in for Tim this summer for a few weeks, along with some other jazz singers mm-hmm. uh, based in Toronto? And so I didn't know I was being auditioned for the new position because <laughs> I didn't know Tim was leaving. All of that right. was being kept under wraps. So I was brought into the studio and, you know, trained. And um, CBC does things a little differently. You know, there's mm-hmm. a producer who programs all the music, so it isn't me. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have any she, influence on that or none? A little bit. Okay. A little <laughs> bit. Yeah. I would say that I have some degree of veto power where I can you know, say, Ooh, I really don't think this should be on the show or, Mm. or like, Hey, you've got to check out this new album. But the show, even though it's very eclectic, you know, Lauren and some of the other senior people at CBC music have spent a fair bit of time honing Mm -hmm. what the brand is of the show. And there have been some musicians who I would love to see featured who just fall outside of the, the sound that they've mm-hmm. determined is Saturday Night Jazz. Um, but anyway, so I was brought into the studio and I was, you know, groomed. Um, <laughs> and and there's now a new head of CBC Music, Steve Jordan. He's actually the guy who also heads up the Polaris Music Prize, which is a really big, big um, music prize that not a lot of people know about. In some mm-hmm. ways, it's bigger than the Junos, oh, only wow. in that it's, it spans all genres and there's one album that wins annually that's sort of considered the best album of in Canada for the year across all genres. Um, So he's now the guy, the main guy at CBC music and he's making some changes. So that's impacting how I approach the show, but it's all very positive. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I'm very grateful that I get to do that. And now we record, you know, from home, Right. Uh, Because of the pandemic. And that's, again, where I'm so lucky to have my husband, the engineer, right? Right. Setting me up and making sure everything sounds great. That's awesome. I loved hosting. I did it for like three or four years and just exposed me to so, so many great artists like yourself. Like you're, I, I now remember that, um, the first song I was really conscious of you was, and so it goes, the Billy Joel. Oh, great. Um, which I'm a huge Billy Joel fan, so <laughs> yeah. I remember playing that on the on the show. And uh, oh, that song! Yeah, that song. <laughs> I mean, I almost got ruined by this sort of cheesy acapella vocal group I was a part of in high school that did 
of an acapella vocal arrangement of it. Mm. But the lyrics, yeah. the lyrics to that song and the melody. Yeah. And, oh, well, yeah. Well, if I was to submit for your uh, song-o-matic or what's it called? Request-o-matic. <laughs> request-o-matic. <laughs> I would request the, I don't even, I think it's just called the lullaby. I don't, yeah, hit the Ooh. song he wrote for his daughter. Oh, beautiful. I don't know it. Oh, you've got to check it out. I think it's on the Bridge oh. album. And it's mm. so sweet. It's like a modern lullaby. Oh, I'm going to write this down. And the the harmony, the melt. Oh, my God. It's just like, it melts me. I love that Aww. song. And the other song that you did that I listened to last night was another song, Dear to My Heart, which is um, the Peter Gabriel. Oh, Yeah. And now the now the name Book of Love. Book of Love, yeah. Yeah. That's so gorgeous. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, you know, and what's funny is I hadn't heard his version when I um it was a request matic that mm-hmm. came in in twenty thirteen, which might have even predated Scratch My Back. I'm trying to let me look that up. I'm curious, Peter Gabriel. Scratch my back. Um yeah, so so he, oh no, that was 2010. Yeah. But anyway, I hadn't heard what he'd done with it and was surprised that his version was kind of similar to mine. Mm. Um, just like way more ballad-like. Yeah. Which makes sense, right? It's the book of love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I actually love the original version, right? The magnetic fields. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, you know, that deep baritone. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It was I was thinking about Peter Gabriel as well because Sting went on tour with him shortly after. And I think yes. it was in 2010. Yep. And I saw that show and he, the highlight actually was Peter Gabriel covering Sting's um, If You Love Somebody, Set Them Free. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was an amazing, like he did it like this total gospel, soulful, slower and at first oh, he's wow. playing it, and I was like, what is this song? And then I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. That did was... Sting cover one of his songs? Sting did. They kind of took turns. Uh, I think Sting sang Sledgehammer. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> and there was Whoa. like, they did this dueling band things. Like Sting's band was all in blue, and Peter Gabriel's band was all in red. And so oh, it was like wow. this really funny... I saw them at, at um, Lake Tahoe outside. It was gorgeous. It was great. It oh was, my gosh! That was an amazing show. But they were in Montreal at the same time as I was for Jazz Fest. Mm. But I didn't. It was that one of those tours where you've got back to back dates, and so yeah. I, <laughs> I saw Joe because Joe's a friend of mine, and she brought some of the other members of that project to my show. But then they were performing. I think the next day or they had performed the night before yeah so i couldn't i couldn't catch their their show yeah. live but i'm sure it was amazing and was, and both sting and peter gabriel are bucket list artists for my husband yeah. and i so yeah. yeah really cool um real quickly what what made you decide to jump onto tiktok i know you're like in the all the other social uh, things but like what was there something that like kind of pushed you over the edge and do you think it's <laughs> Do you think it's important? <laughs> Obviously, you must. The jury's out. No, the jury's <laughs> out. I'm, I'm, I'm actually. I, my relationship with TikTok is so fraught. I've, <laughs> I've ended up in tears, um, in like the very short period of time that I've been experimenting. I mean, mm-hmm. 
I feel like I've been reduced to very clown-like behavior <laughs> again because I think that's where the app pushes yeah. people. And I, I, I'm trying to determine who I am on TikTok. And I feel like at the moment I'm a bit of a puppet of mm. the app. And because I have no followers there really yet, mm. I have to share it to all my other platforms. Yeah. And the algorithms on those other platforms hate it when you share <laughs> TikTok because they don't want people going to TikTok. They want people staying on yeah. Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm shooting myself over the in the foot a little bit in in having TikTok enter the equation and the merits of it. I don't know. I mean, mm. I, I really, I do think that maybe there are in general, like younger people mm -hmm. on TikTok. Yeah. And it's a very, you know, it's just a unique, really unique platform. And so even though I'm hating it, <laughs> I am going to push myself to stick with it maybe another few months. And if it's just, if it just, if I sense that it's driving me into territory that either isn't authentic or doesn't doesn't really move my brand mm -hmm. forward um and then i'm gonna i'm gonna say goodbye right <laughs> what do you think i it's so new i don't know tiktok is like a mystery to me except for yeah. like the the fun dance stuff that i like to watch and my my uh nieces and nephews you know like, oh, Uncle Steve, you should get on TikTok and try to do this dance thing. And I'm like, yeah, uh, that's not going right, to happen. <laughs> right, right. And, that, and that's the thing. If you already have certain abilities that slot beautifully into the platform, like Katie George doing her crazy yeah. scat thing, yeah. then you're golden. And But so far from what I can tell, although I haven't really done this yet, I don't get the sense that people just want to see you perform your music they want to yeah. see you duetting with other tiktok influencers and yeah. the dance thing i mean really that's been yeah i think that was sort of the original tiktok right yeah. was that it's like about people dance. doing these fun little <laughs> but now it's all like a mishmash of absurdities yeah. and <laughs> some very fun though yeah like there's this one guy who oh, i forget his i think his last name is judson and he does these compilations of all the characters from Schitt's Creek. Oh my God. <laughs> and he is, Michael Judson, I think is his name. Okay. He is brilliant. I'll have to Brilliant. <laughs> so if that's what TikTok is, yeah. then I'm okay with that. So, but anyway. How, um, how critical do you feel that other social media platforms are for you as for publicity or, or exposure? I think they're important. I think people are really sick of me. Like some of my, I think I've lost a few of my peers because mm. they're, they probably watch what I do and they're like, oh man, she's so promo-y, <laughs> you know, enough with the promo. But um, just the other day, because my husband and I, it, it depends on what your metric is, Steve. Mm. If the goal is revenue, like yeah. if that's the ultimate goal, you know, the jury's out. Yeah. Um, however, I got a gig the other day or a, an email about a gig the other day where um, the guy booking me was like, by the way, I just love everything you're doing on socials. Mm. And so it kept me in his feed. 
you yeah. know, yeah. and on his radar. Mm. So that's meaningful. Yeah, um, but I don't see that very often. So more than anything for me, it's it's a way to build community. Mm. And so uh, in terms of the various platforms, the one where I have felt it the most profoundly is my Facebook mm. artist page, not my personal page because I got very little engagement over there. Yeah, but on my artist page, you know, the thing I've liked best, and it's a more recent discovery, is when. The people following me there drive the content and they say, hey, we want to know what you like. Like, we want to know the albums mm -hmm. where, like, for example, right now I'm doing a series on interesting collaborations. Mm -hmm. And it's just started this conversation. And people are chiming in, fellow musicians, and then just lovers of music. And I, and I, when I, you know, see that and I see you know, the, the conversation that results, then I'm yeah. like, oh, that's social media at its best. Yeah. And I get excited. That's awesome. Cause it's not just look at me and like my right. new video. Right. It's like, oh, let's have a conversation about what we all love yeah. side by side right. about music. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, what, so these are, we're going to wrap up with a few little rapid fire <laughs> I'm so, terrible at these. Okay, um, yeah. What What are your essentials for when you're composing, creating, writing? Like, what essential tools do you ha must have? Ideally, a great piano. Though I think a crappy piano can can um, provoke unexpected ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so I won't limit myself there. Manuscript paper. I have to have manuscript paper. What kind of um, pencils do you use, or do you use pen? I. You know what I tend to use again, maybe as a sign of my impatience, I actually use those little click pencils mm -hmm. where, you know, as lead, although they break all the time, <laughs> but you know, you don't have to like sharpen, keep yeah, sharpening yeah. the pencils. Yeah. You just click and out comes a little more lead. So yeah. I like those. You got to have a good eraser that doesn't smudge. Um, Do you have a favorite brand of eraser? No, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sorry curious. to be so boring. No, I no, like no, the little white ones. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. And then honestly, and then some cup of comfort. So a cup of tea, mm -hmm. a cup of coffee, yeah. it just stimulates and calms at the same time. And yeah. it helps me get into that kind of alpha wave space where you can write. And are you, you know, where creativity flows? Is there a time of day where you're more creative than other? That keeps shifting. Generally, the evenings. I feel like as the world winds down, mm. I again can access the music and ideas in a more quiet space at the end of the day. Right. Cool. Um, what are you listening to, if anything, these days? I am checking out what other people are checking out, like the music that's making a bit of a splash. And I force myself to listen to entire albums. Oh, nice. So I just listened through Veronica Swift's latest, Bitter Earth, because mm -hmm. um, everyone is, you know, she's kind of all the rage. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear what she's doing. Yeah. Um, I just listened through Cecile McLaurin-Salvant's um, entire discography. Wow. <laughs> More for pleasure than anything, because it's yeah. tax time. And so I'm working on taxes and I'm like, well, what can help brighten this experience. Uh, Jasmine Horn, uh, somebody introduced me to an album yesterday called, and I met this person through Twitter. So hmm. uh, yet again, that's a testimony to s social media. Right. His name is Steve Clampkin and he's in Rhode Island. He's actually a, a news anchor, but okay. he loves music. And uh, he introduced me to a project 
that features the London Symphony Orchestra, a group, oh, they're an electronic music group. I'm now blanking on their name. Mm. I'm just going to pull up Spotify here. And Pharaoh Sanders. Oh, my gosh. And it's a 2021 release. Okay. And it's Floating Point. Point. My (laughs) husband chimed in because I made him listen to it yesterday. Awesome. And it's really, really interesting. And then to be honest with you, I listened to a bit of what my son listens to. Just last night as we were winding down for bed, he's like, Mom, you know, he loves (laughs) K-pop. And so so he was like, put on some BTS or put on Icon or put on Blackpink. So... I'm also listening to what the kids are into, which I think is relevant. You know, it's important to understand and hear, like, don't just write off, you know, pop hits because they're resonating for a reason. Yeah. Is Josh musical? Do you think he's going to play an instrument? He already, yeah, so he plays piano. Nice. um, And violin. Oh, fun. Um, Yeah, so it's a discipline. My husband is amazing at keeping him you know, dedicated <laughs> and practicing, which is no small feat, yeah. but he loves to improvise. He oh. just loves to sit at the piano and play all these wacky chords. <laughs> we can hardly believe it. <laughs> and that's my husband's DNA there, that's I think, really not mine. Cool. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, so what's upcoming for you? Do you have any gigs on the calendar? Or are you working? Like, I know you're, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you've got these things you're re- recording. What's what's on yeah. the, what's coming up for you? I am trying to mastermind my next big step musically. Um, I feel like I suffer from the equivalent of personality disorder musically, mm. where I just don't know half the time who I am, or maybe it's that I'm afraid to be who I am mm. still, still, um, just for fear of being rejected by the pop world as yeah. too jazz, or being re- rejected by the jazz world as too pop. And every time I gear up to make a new album, I have to like slay that dragon. I can't believe it. It's crazy. Like yeah. I need therapy and I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's, yeah. it's that big for me because I want a home. Yeah. I, Steve, I, I want a home. I want to belong yeah. somewhere. And because my music falls in the cracks a little bit, sometimes I feel without a home. Yeah. But, um, Those genre categories are, very frustrating (laughs) they are and the truth is you know like it or not there is community that gathers around them yeah even though they matter less now than ever which i'm relieved to see yeah um but yeah you know pandemic for us has been so much about survival Mm -hmm. and so i know for some people that's been conducive to the creative process for me it's been the opposite Mm. i've like if you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs like i (laughs) just We need shelter, we need food, we need sleep, you know, yeah. um, before you can get to the aesthetics. Um, so, and music for me is foundational to who I am in the world, but funnily enough, actually getting to the music has often been secondary. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be releasing those acoustic videos I mentioned in mm-hmm. the coming months. We're releasing one this weekend for Easter. Nice. Um, and then uh, I'll have a few more coming out. Um, I have a couple singles that I'm considering, but they really, one of them really takes me away from jazz. And jazz does still feel a little bit like home base yeah. to me. 
Um, so I don't know. I have a lot to think about. Yeah. I'll, I'll be excited to see what comes out creatively. Um, what would you, if you could tr time travel and go back and, and have a conversation with 21 year old Lila. Yeah. Uh, what would you want to say to her? If anything, I would just, I'd say two things. <laughs> One is sort of not as encouraging, but I think it's an important slice mm -hmm. of, or, or little pearl. Um, I would tell her that it's going to be much, a much longer and difficult, more difficult road mm. than she expected. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that would have, I don't know. It's hard to know if that would have actually stifled yeah. the younger me or if it would have helped me kind of steel myself against what was to come. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely say that, but then I would also say, but don't be afraid because you know, you're in a world that is not ageist, you know, that's one of the benefits of being a jazz, a quote, jazz musician. Yeah. And that, you know, you're going to keep growing and, you know, don't worry, the world will not abandon you. Mm. They're, they're going to celebrate, you know, all the sort of shifts and changes along the way. And it's going to get <clears throat> even richer over time. Nice. So, yeah. Really cool. Where can mm -hmm. people find out more about Lila Bialy? You know, my website, I think, is a great place for all the bits. Mm -hmm. So you can buy my music there. You can find my music online um, through my website. Um, you can, you know, see what gigs are coming up. Actually, I do have some shows coming up, Steve, that oh, I awesome. don't have in the tour okay. section of my page. So I got to go update that. Cool. Um, and then there's a video page that also needs to be updated, but um, there's some good, good stuff there. And I try to keep it current. Um, but then I'd say where I'm most active on a daily basis are socials. Yeah. So um, Facebook, I'm at Lila Bialy Music. Twitter, Lila Bialy. I love Instagram <laughs> just because it's so yeah. visual by nature. Yeah. Um, and you can find me there at Lila Bialy. And if you dare... TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Lila, I'm so grateful to have had you had this conversation and have you on the show. It's it's been really fun and awesome talking with you. Oh, it's really my pleasure and it's it's great to be able to, you know, share my story and you ask such great questions and um you're a musician it sounds like, I, right? Yes. You also Yeah, I yeah. I'm a saxophonist. I studied I got my master's in saxophone performance and a play uh, and teach. I mean, that's not my, that's not what I do for income, but the, definitely yeah. it's, I identify as a musician. So. Yeah, no, that's why I think that's what makes you as an interviewer um, special, right? Is there's that resonance and, yeah. and um, you're in our world Absolutely. at least somewhat, right? So <laughs> yeah. So anyway, thank you so much, Steve, and uh, look forward to meeting you in person, whether stateside or in Canada. Yeah, yeah. If we come to Canada, if we get into Toronto, I'll definitely, I'll definitely ping you. It'd be fun to fun to meet post, you know, post pandemic. <laughs> likewise, likewise. All right, thanks, Lila. Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing wonderfully and looking forward to the coming spring and summer as much as I am. 
Thanks again for listening. I hope you really enjoyed this conversation with Lila Bialy. It was sure fun getting to know her and talking with her. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy my interviews with vocalists Kate McGarry and Sarah Gazarek, both amazing musicians. And we've got some great guests coming up in the next few weeks, including Steve Smith, drummer from Journey, which you're not going to want to miss. Check out the website, theplayfulmusician.com. You can see show notes and links to all things mentioned in the show. There you can also find all the past episodes and links to their show notes also. Once again, that's theplayfulmusician.com. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you real soon. Thank you.